Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Big political news this week. It's finally official. Former Vice President Joe Biden has jumped into the race for president in 2020. He announced his bid by video and positioned his run as a battle for the soul of the country. He said that we cannot let Donald Trump alter the character of the nation. Zach Montalero, campaign reporter for Politico, joins us to talk about what we should be watching out for as Joe Biden joins an already crowded field of contenders. There's about 20 people total right now. And we start off by talking about the first big thing to watch out for, fundraising numbers. His video was probably the worst kept secret in Washington. That's my, maybe why he went so early. You know, just about every outlet was reporting that Joe Biden is coming this week. He does have a bigger launch rolling out, but, you know, with this, he can officially start fundraising. And that's really what he wants to do. That's why he announced now. There's a, several fundraisers planned over the weekend that we know about that are just trying to make a big splash, trying to declare that Joe Biden is a major candidate, that despite the fact that Joe Biden is, you know, older than most of the candidates, is certainly more moderate than a lot of the candidates in the field, that Joe Biden, at least in his team's mind, should be seen as the front runner. That's the first big test is all of the fundraising, what he gets in the first 24 hours and the first week. Joe Biden even said that in a conference call with some of his top donors, like, this is the big test. We need to go big on on the money. The interesting part of that, too, is how will he raise that money? You know, campaign finance has really passed Joe Biden by. He hasn't had to run a you know campaign on he is the sole figurehead since 2008. Back then, it used to be largely based around big donors cutting that one check, you know, around bundlers gathering a bunch of their rich friends and all giving money at once. That's really not how Democrats are funding their campaigns anymore. At least in part, Democrats are relying on those small donors to give them money. You know, somebody chipping in 20 bucks a couple times in the course of the campaign, someone giving $5 every month. And that's the big question for Joe Biden is, can he raise that money from small donors? Joe Biden does not have an infrastructure that a lot of these other candidates had. Senator Bernie Sanders is incredible at raising these small dollar donors. That's what he powered his 2016 campaign on. He's kept his email list. He's kept his support base active. But even current senators we've seen have have seen success in that too. Senator Kamala Harris is no slouch at this. He's been actively fundraising online. Someone like former rep Beto O'Rourke powered his Texas Senate campaign off that. So Joe Biden needs to figure out a way to match that, not only in the big dollar and the big top line money, but also showing people that he has that grassroots support. Let's talk about the messaging from Joe Biden's video, because it was a little different than the messaging from some of his rivals. He started off with a lot of imagery from the neo-Nazi rallies in Charlottesville. He hit on the president for saying that there was very fine people on both sides. And he said, we can't let Donald Trump change who the country is. Even his sister, Valerie Biden Owens, who has run some of his campaigns and everything before, they said that when Charlottesville was happening, that that was the big moment where Joe Biden and a lot of other people were saying, you got to run. I got to do it. It was the big yes for him at that point. Him mentioning the president so explicitly is also interesting, too. You know, a lot of other candidates, they don't dance around who they want to run against, but they mention him a little bit more obliquely or, you know, maybe leave him out entirely to their opening message. But for the vice president, he's making clear what his message is. He goes, hey, voters in the middle of the country, voters that I think I can win back to the Democratic Party. I'm like you. You remember me. You like me. You shouldn't like this other guy, this other guy being the president, saying that from the gate, from the get go. 
that he's just explicitly referencing the president. And you know what many people find to be the super offensive parts about the president, his rhetoric on white nationalism. And the vice president is just trying to say, remember me and remember who I am and remember who I want to run against. Let's talk about some of the pros and cons that he has. I know his age is a con, but it could also be a pro for him. He He's positioning it as, as a benefit. You know, the world leaders respect him. He's a seasoned statesman. He knows what he's doing in this arena. So he can play it that way. And even with Democrats, he's more of a centrist. They can position themselves as progressive versus centrist, outsiders versus establishment. So what else are we looking for with his campaign? For all the hubbub of do Democrats want a younger face for the party, the top two candidates in Literally every single poll have been two 70 plus year old men, white men, you know, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. So I think we're probably seeing that collectively between the two of them, they've just about approached a 50 percent in both polls. That Yes, Democrats broadly want a younger face of the party. But if it means beating Trump, they'll take an old white guy. Of course, the differences between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders are quite vast other than their age. But it's always interesting to me to see that how Democrats are fueled by younger voters, more or less. It's an important part of the coalition. So Joe Biden needs to embrace parts of his legacy that have that moderate streak, that Joe Biden has always been a politician who wanted to work across the aisle. Joe Biden, even now, even recently, applaud Republicans, applaud certain Republicans. He said recently that former Florida Governor Jeb Bush was a hell of a governor. So Joe Biden knows who he is, and he thinks his moderate policy will win over Democratic voters and win over the voters that the Democratic Party lost in 2016. Before he even announced that he was running, this whole thing of uh, the creepy Uncle Joe Biden thing came out. Uh, Lucy Flores had said that he inappropriately was touching her and smelled her hair and things like that. So uh, he seemed to kind of brush that off a little bit and still launched. But there's 558 days left until the 2020 election. So there's tons of time for everything to change. Yeah, we're just under a year away from the first votes being cast in Iowa. So there's so much time for everything to change, too. On the Lucy Flores bit, too, he tried to call up Anita Hill and express regret for how he and other members of the, of the Judiciary Committee infamously handled her hearing, you know, 20-something years ago for Clarence Thomas. Anita Hill told the New York Times that she doesn't see that as an apology, and Joe Biden really didn't apologize to her, and that she needs to see more from him before she's ready to say that she could support him. So the Biden camp knows that there's something that needs to give, that there's some level that Biden needs to accept from the current, from the new Democrats who don't operate like old Democrats. But, you know, that's Biden has Biden's been elected in office longer than I've been alive. So Vice President Joe Biden really can't, you know, escape everything. Well, we're off to the races now. Zach Montalero, campaign reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. We're now in the age of legal marijuana, and many employers are starting to drop that zero tolerance rule when it comes to drug tests. In states like California, where marijuana is legal, the economy is growing and unemployment is low, companies are facing shortages of qualified workers. We spoke to Margot Roosevelt, economy and labor reporter for the LA Times, to tell us why increasingly companies are not drug testing or ignoring some of the drug tests when it comes to THC. Employers have the right to exclude any job applicants who test positive for THC, which is the main psychoactive ingredient in marijuana. Even if you're taking it with a medical prescription, they're allowed to either exclude you from 
being hired or if you're tested on the job, they're allowed to fire you. That was part of the California law specifically stating that, right? It was in the recreational law and the California Supreme Court in 2008 ruled that medical marijuana did not enable you to be labeled as disabled in order to keep your job. And one of the companies in particular that you profiled was Rye Electric, who they do screen all their prospective workers for drugs. It's a millennial heavy workplace. It's a construction company. And they're one of these companies that are choosing to look the other way because in some of their words, they say, what are we going to say? You can't do something that's legal now. The biggest problem with these drug tests is that in the case of marijuana, if you smoke marijuana on a Saturday night, which is legal in California, and then a couple of weeks later, you apply for a job. Even if you haven't smoked in between or or partaken in between, it will show up. It can show up in your urine test. And that doesn't mean that you're impaired on the job if you smoked it two weeks earlier. The problem is that the test does not measure whether you have any kind of impairment from the THC that's found in your urine. So that's why a lot of employers are coming around to the feeling that it's not really a fair test and it's not really fair to exclude people based on the test. You mentioned a couple times in your article that from people that are employers that you're talking to, they're saying there's people who drink and are great workers, but they don't do it on the job. And marijuana is just like that. As long as you're not doing it on the job, it's just like alcohol you can potentially be a very effective worker. Somebody else even said it's been destigmatized and it's like a glass of wine drinking kind of thing. We should point out, however, that there are jobs that where the federal government has very strict rules that you cannot test positive. So even though the state may overlook marijuana in some industries, there are jobs like airline pilot and aerospace jobs and train conductors and truck drivers, jobs that the Department of Transportation, the Federal Department of Transportation says these people must be tested, whether you like it or not. And if they do test positive, they cannot be hired. Yeah. And even Um, in some companies that, you know, you're operating heavy machinery or you're a nurse or something and you have to give people shots or draw blood. These are really important things that, yeah, they're going to hold the line. And if you test positive for this stuff, you're not going to get hired. If the employer has a manufacturing plant and they feel it's a dangerous plant and there was an accident in this plant, maybe somebody could sue them and say that they were negligent by allowing a marijuana smoker to operate machinery. So I think a lot of this is driven by fear of lawsuits. There is another company you profiled basically saying they had up to five candidates who aced their interviews, they toured the plant, they were ready to get hired and everything, but all five of them in a single day failed their drug test for marijuana. They got disqualified right away. I think uh, other people, they said, once they know a drug test is coming, they start ghosting and then they just never follow up with the process again. But in that case, they're losing candidates, but there's other things at risk. You know, they're liable in ca- if somebody gets hurt and, and they're looking towards that. They don't want to be caught up in that. It's a particularly big problem right now because the job market is so tight. Unemployment is so low. In California, it's down to 4.2%. And that means that businesses are really scrambling to find workers. And by drug testing and by excluding anybody who might have smoked marijuana in the previous week, that really narrows the pool of potential workers that they could hire. Overall, drug testing in the workplace is going down also, though, right? In the old days, before the Reagan administration, there really wasn't much drug testing. Drug testing was kind of an outgrowth of the Reagan-era war on drugs. 
during that era and in the wake of that war on drugs, it went up to 80% of companies. But back a decade earlier, only 20% of companies tested for drugs. And now there aren't really reliable estimates, but those surveys have shown that it's down to about half of companies. There's about 10 states and D.C. who have recreational marijuana laws now. There's 33 states that allow medical marijuana usage. So these companies are just trying to adapt and change with time now. And some states are also doing the same thing, too. Uh, They're passing laws where you can't really discriminate against people if they're smoking pot. There are 13 states that have laws that explicitly say you can't discriminate against medical marijuana patients. So... If you come in for a job and you present your prescription and you say, you know, I have pain that I keep under control with marijuana or anxiety or whatever, and this is my prescription from my doctor, they can't exclude you just on the basis of that in these 13 states, but California is not one of those. One trend that we may see down the road was signaled by the New York City Council this past week, and they barred most private businesses and city agencies from even screening applicants for marijuana at all. So that would be a real ratcheting up of the regulations, and the mayor of New York is likely to sign that. Margot Roosevelt covering the California economy and labor for the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Tragedy struck in Sri Lanka last week on Easter Sunday where three churches and four hotels were hit by suicide bombers. The Islamic State has claimed responsibility, but has offered no concrete evidence that they were behind it. Officials say it might have been retaliation for last month's mosques attack in New Zealand. And the bigger worry, there was reports that Sri Lanka had been warned ahead of time about an impending attack, but did not act on the intelligence. We spoke to Dave Lawler, Axios World Editor, to tell us what we know so far. They have released a video that they say shows the bombers before the attack pledging their loyalty to the Islamic State. We don't have confirmation that that's what we're looking at in the video, and the faces of all but one of the attackers is covered. So we don't have confirmation, but we have heard both from the Sri Lankan government and from experts that there was likely some international coordination here from a group capable of pulling off more sophisticated attacks than the local actors that had been implicated. And so we were sort of waiting for an indication of where that help might have come from. And the Islamic State says that it was them. Part of the reasoning behind that is that six of the suicide bombers went off almost at the exact same time. So the coordination was beyond what that local group was capable of. And that's why they think they had outside help uh, leading them to, you know, suspect Islamic State there. One of the other things that happened was officials in Sri Lanka were saying that it was possible that this could have been retribution for what happened in New Zealand, the terrorist attack that happened there when about 50 people were killed in the mosques there. What evidence do they have to support that? There is a cabinet official, I believe it was the defense minister in Sri Lanka, who put this theory out there. An attack like this, oftentimes you would think it would take months to pull off. And that's what what experts say. This is not something that happens in a matter of weeks or, or even five weeks, I guess, that we've had in between the Christchurch attacks. And now, so likely, you know, this attack was likely to have been in the works. The the idea that it was motivated by New Zealand seems unlikely. That is certainly something that if you are the Islamic State, you can put out there as an explanation and also a justification for this attack that is going to. Certainly, a lot of people will see this and say there's no justification. But if you're the Islamic State, you can say Muslims are under attack around the world. And this is retribution for that. Again, we have no confirmation that that is what motivated this attack, but it is something that's 
floating around. A lot of reports are starting to surface that Sri Lankan intelligence officials were tipped off about an imminent attack that was going to be coming by Islamist militants. There's reports of these warnings coming as early as April 4th and even hours leading into the attacks. Some people are pointing to infighting between the Sri Lankan president and the prime minister as reasons why this information might not have been circulated enough. What do we know about these details? Almost immediately after the attack, we heard from the prime minister of Sri Lanka who said that he had heard retrospectively that intelligence had been shared with the president who was a rival of his and had not made its way to him or to to other people who could have taken action on this. We now do have confirmation from the president that there was intelligence that wasn't acted on. So basically everybody at the top levels in Sri Lanka is saying there was a breakdown, there was a failure here. The latest reporting I've seen is from CNN that Indian intelligence had actually picked up warnings from somebody that they had that they were holding there, and he had given some sort of warning that an attack was being planned in Sri Lanka. Again, apparently there were multiple warnings passed back and forth, and nothing was done. The Catholic Church in Sri Lanka is very upset about this. They say if they were warned, they would have told people to stay away from Easter services. What do we know about the group, the local group there, who was suspected of carrying out these attacks? People are saying that the leader of this group came to the attention of other Muslim leaders a few years ago for some of his incendiary speeches online. A lot of hate campaign stuff against all non-Muslims, basically saying, you know, non-Muslims have to be eliminated. What do we know about that group? Because they really just kind of seem to have come out of nowhere. When I saw the name of this group surface, I had never heard of them. And I wondered, you know, is this something that I've missed? And then I saw lots of people who follow terrorism quite closely and track these sort of things had never heard of them either. So this is a group that was hardly known inside Sri Lanka and was certainly not known internationally before this attack, which is, again, one of the reasons why people thought there must have been outside help. And Sri Lanka does not historically have a problem with Muslim extremism. And there's been lots of commentary on the fact that the Christian minority and the Muslim minority, again, these are both minority religions in Sri Lanka, which is a predominantly Buddhist country, that they had gotten along relatively well. So that's one of the concerning things here that you now have this sort of new fault line in Sri Lanka, which is a very divided country, potentially now between Muslim extremists and the Christian community. A few updates since we did that interview. Officials have released new information about the nine alleged perpetrators behind the bombings. There were eight men and one woman that carried out those attacks on Sunday. Two of them were a married couple. And the state minister for defense said that some of these people were quite well educated. And experts tend to say that that's actually par for the course. A lot of times these terrorist perpetrators and suicide bombers often come across as awfully normal and they are well-educated. At the same time, Sri Lanka has had to revise the death toll from last Sunday's blast to about 253. The unfortunate thing was that they said that the morgues were providing inaccurate figures. There were so many body parts, it was difficult to get a precise figure, and that some people were counted multiple times. And the last update, the Sri Lankan defense secretary has resigned in response to the intelligence failures. Remember, we told you that there was advance notice that some type of attack was coming and nothing was acted on. So that person now has resigned. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.